Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Back in the medieval period, for example, and most pre-industrial times, like you milked the cows when the cows needed milking and you harvested the crops when the crops needed harvesting. And you just never had any cause in the first place to think of time as this abstract mathematical realm. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Rodney Evans, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Aaron Dignan. Hey, hey, hey. We are also joined today by Oliver Berkman, of whom we are both huge fans. (laughs) Oliver is a journalist and the author of several books, including The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, and most recently, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. On today's episode, we're going to talk about our broken relationship to time and time management. Lord, I cannot wait. (laughs) But before we unpack that, let's do a check-in round. Yes. So as always, we begin these episodes checking in. And when we have guests, we get to check in with them. And today, the check-in question will be, what do you love about where you live? Which we just discussed. So I think we'll go Rodney and then myself, and we'll finish with Oliver. Anyone who knows me knows that I am ride or die Durham. I had (laughs) no hometown pride when I lived in Manhattan or Brooklyn, and I will not shut up about Durham. The weather is awesome. The people are awesome. It's just a cool, weird, fun little city, and I cannot imagine living anywhere else. I love it so much. And she's not kidding, folks. She will. She'll talk your ear (laughs) off about it if you let her. Just Um, move here already. I've been waiting for so long. Everybody needs to get it done. For me, I live in Denver, and the th- I would say the singular best thing about Denver, which is a little shocking to folks when they first get here, but over time you learn to love, is that there is no humidity. So <laughs> you are just able to be outside. If it's too hot and you just step under the shade of a tree, it's 25 degrees cooler. So it's very, very nice uh, to be in a place that is not like a sauna. Uh, and then, of course, you know, ironically, I, I built a steam shower. <laughs> So, <laughs> Oliver, what about you? Well, we live in the North York Moors in Northern England now. I lived in Brooklyn for about New York for about a decade. My wife's American, but we're here now in this in this bleak countryside, not far from where I grew up. And I, what I love about it is, I'm not sure I can even put it into words, but there is a sort of a bracing quality to the landscape here. It's very, we're pretty isolated. It's very, very open moors it's not um it's not sort of pastoral country like la- landscape you know it's quite it's quite forbidding and when i'm out there walking on a which i try to do most days feeling very tiny in the context of this pretty large landscape there's just some basic sense in which like 
nothing can be that bad <laughs> in that in that context. There's a contextualizing that goes on. Meanwhile, we're in the UK, so it's a kind of a tiny country and it isn't difficult to get to London, to get to other cities, to visit friends, things like that. It's not actually that far away, really, not by American standards. Nice. Well, I guess we'll bring we'll bring some of that peacefulness into this episode because today's topic is what we don't talk about when we talk about time and time management. And so we wanted to start by asking you, for listeners who know nothing about your book, which is a number that's you know dwindling by the day with all the recommendations, <laughs> why is it called 4,000 Weeks? What does that number refer to and what does that mean to you? 4,000 Weeks is extremely approximately, because I went for the round number that would shock people, the number of weeks that you'll get if you live to an average lifespan in the West. Actually, if you live to be 80, it's going to be what? do the maths, 4,100 and whatever. But anyway, it's it's this very finite number. And frankly, even if you break records, even if you live to be 122, uh, as one or two people have done, you know, you're only going to get six and a half thousand or something. Uh, again, my math is bad, but that's the number. It's like, no matter how you phrase it or, or finesse it, <laughs> it's uh, sort of shockingly short, I think. Yeah, I think to most people, and I know when I listened to your book, I was just like, that number feels too small. That cannot possibly <laughs> be true. How did you feel? Like, did you, I guess I'm curious, one, how did you feel about that number? Did it feel small to you? And two, did you pick it because of how shockingly small it does feel? Yeah, I mean, I, I it certainly shocked me when I first uh, encountered it. And I, and I write in the book about, you know, running to ask a friend, like, what do you think? Just don't do any math in your head. Just tell me how many mm. weeks you think the average human gets. And she said something like 150,000, which doesn't seem, <laughs> if, you, if you haven't heard the run up to this, like, I don't think that yeah, seems. Yeah, that seems right. That right. That's a lot. You know, how many, you know how many weeks the whole of human civilization has taken to elapse since the ancient Sumerians of Mesopotamia? It's about 310,000 weeks. Wow. So, um, it, it's all pretty terrifying. I chose it as a title because I... I don't know. I can't resist a sort of arresting title. I will concede, or rather say I hope, that there's an element of bait and switch here. Mm. Because I hope and do not believe that the message, I don't think that the message of the book is you should now either panic or despair right. <laughs> um, for the rest of your life. I think it's actually a liberating message. I hope that, that the message of what I'm trying to say about our limitations and our finite time is actually quite liberating and even relaxing but the title is not. And, uh, <laughs> I wasn't relaxed at the beginning, but I was <laughs> relaxed by the end. I, I am curious, you know, as someone else that has kind of gone down the rabbit hole and, and written for a long time, why did you need to write this book? What was going on for you that really made it happen? I find this question hard to answer just because I'm under no, I've got no doubt at all, like this was the book I needed to write in order to figure out how I thought about these things and also mm. sort of, you know, it's therapy in some way. I think books like this always are for the author, right? It's you're drawn to a topic because you struggle with it, not because you've figured it all out and it's and it, at which point it would be kind of boring to you, I think. So I think, I guess to get therapy-ish about it for a moment and to look at it <laughs> as in the whole course of my life, it was a, a sort of a response to having reached a point in my adult life where my sort of fixation on trying to control my time and organize my life and, you know, put myself in a position where I could do all the things I felt I needed to do in order to justify my existence on the planet or, or whatever. These methods clearly weren't working anymore. So there's a little bit of a sort of midlife crisis aspect to this, I suppose, you know, the sense of like, hang on, 
I'm never going to get to this point that I think I'm working towards here where I, where everything is simple and trouble free. And I've got, you know, the perfect system for doing life in a way that isn't scary or doesn't feel uncertain. So that was the sort of point that I was getting to. Now, the very strange thing for me in hindsight is that I sold the proposal for this book and then not long afterwards, um, became a, a, a father. And so mm. all the big changes that have happened in my life over the last few years, and then by the way, obviously had to like negotiate multiple contract extensions to the book because I wasn't <laughs> going to be getting it written in those, in those first years. So it's funny because like the book proposal that I wrote had all these things that I was going to need to learn <laughs> in the coming years, but I had no clear idea at that moment that I was going to need to learn them about you know, how one thinks about time and what counts as a meaningful thing to do with your time and, and how you model the right things to a small kid and all this stuff. I had no idea I was going to need that, but apparently somebody, something in the cosmos did. <laughs> the uh, universe knew. Yes, The exactly. universe knew what lessons you needed, and so they made it into your book proposal. That's the best. <laughs> I do want to, since we've started to go to that place, I, I want to talk about what the assumptions are that most people operate with when thinking about time and and why do those assumptions make us feel so so very shitty because one of the best things about your book and there are many wonderful things to me was the unpacking of things that are held to be true about time that just are not so can you talk a little bit about those assumptions and why they make us feel like shit but we believe them anyway <laughs> yeah totally i mean i can come at this at any level but i think i guess the sort of the unifying idea here is that we spend a lot of our lives in, in a state of trying to sort of, well, you might think of it as trying to get in control of your time or trying to win the struggle with time, just trying to get on top of everything, trying to get your life in working order in some way, right? There's, I think there's lots of different manifestations of this. And almost always one feels on the back foot, that, you know, you, you, you're not a little bit out of control. If only you had a few extra days in the week or you had a bit more self-discipline or the right time management system or something, you would, you would, you think you maybe probably could get in charge of the, of the chaos. Yes. Uh, but you're not there now. And in the meantime, the things that you care about the most doing seem to get endlessly postponed. And the stuff that you actually spend your day on seems like it's kind of less important, but you've really just got to get it out of the way first. And there are different versions of this. And some people exist in a situation of extreme overwhelm and busyness and other people don't. But I think it all has this quality of wanting to sort of be in a, the master of your time somehow. And the argument that I suppose I'm making at the deepest level in the book is that that quest is actually a far less reasonable looking quest than it seems. That is the quest to become unbound by the limitations of time. It's mm. actually the quest to sort of, if we want to really put it in a melodramatic way, to sort of escape the human condition, to get into a position outside of your life where you could be the sort of air traffic controller of your life. And what I'm sort of relentlessly returning to in the book is that no, there's always going to be more things to do than you're going to have time in which to do them. There's always going to be more important and meaningful things to do than you're going to have time in which to do them because the set of things that matters is kind of infinitely expandable and your time right. is very much not. There are all sorts of additional dynamics like if you get more successful in your work, these problems are probably going to get worse because the opportunities that you're torn between are going to strike you as overall, you know, more enticing and more important than they would all have done 
at a previous stage. The fact that if you try to become really, really efficient to handle your the, the overwhelm, if you try to become incredibly efficient at handling email or whatever else it might be, you're probably going to get busier because those are infinite supplies. And if you get more efficient at getting through an infinite supply of something, you don't get to the end of it. You just end up doing a lot more of it. And so, you know, there's a whole lot of other things going on here, but it's it's just this kind of invitation, I hope, this book, to just kind of settle back down into our real situation and our real, you know, the real mismatch that will always exist between what we might like to do and what we can do. And then, and this is a crucial bit to finish with, I think, seeing that that kind of acceptance of reality is not a recipe for a mediocre life or for a despairing life. It is a recipe for a more relaxed life, I think, but it's also a recipe for actually getting around to like the most interesting and meaningful accomplishments you might do in your life. So it's like, I think it's totally a kind of outlook that is consistent with being really ambitious, say, if, if that's what you are for your career. It starts from engaging with reality instead of trying to putting all our efforts into trying to deny <laughs> the painfulness of our finite situation. Yeah. I remember very specifically where I was. I was walking my dog. It was nighttime. I can tell you exactly what streetlight I was under. When I heard the part about like sort of the better you are at getting through your to-do list, the longer your to-do list will become. And I remember, out, I kid you not, out loud being like, fuck. <laughs> That's true. Uh oh. And then, and it was a real, but it was a really helpful reframe because I feel like on some level we we're socialized to believe that if we become these like efficient machines that have more capacity to produce than we ever thought imaginable, that that at some point we will be done. And the flip of like, no, actually, there will just be more because there's always more, I found to be. Very, very powerful. So thank you for that. Oh, I'm so happy to hear it. And I hope, yeah, I mean, I I just hope that there is a realization in those, that, that kind of point, right? That you don't need to spend your time and energy fighting to achieve something that literally no human being is ever going to achieve, which is <laughs> to sort of leap over this gap between being finite and, and facing infinite possible uses for time. And then you can just spend your time doing a handful of things that matter and uh feel less bad about it yeah yeah you know it's very easy i i think in modernity to see this struggle and be like yeah this is just how it's always been humans have always been trying to optimize against time to do the most and have the most and be the most but that doesn't actually seem to be the case it's actually quite a modern phenomenon or at least as you outlined in the book it it seems that way can you maybe give an abridged history of how humans thought about time before lifehacker.com? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'll give, I mean, it's a pretty abridged in the book and I'll abridge it even more. I, obviously, you know, these kind of shifts take place in a very complicated way, different pl- points in history, different places in the world. But I think the basic idea that I, the point I want to make in the book is that, you know, before industrialization, basically. So I pick a sort of notional medieval peasant early medieval England as my reference point here. These people had terrible lives. (laughs) I mean, absolutely terrible lives. But I don't think they would have experienced, I think there's reason to believe they wouldn't have experienced time problems. And this was because they just, 
fundamentally didn't think of time as a thing that was separate to them, that they were in a relationship or a fight with. They didn't think of their activities in the day of being sort of lined up along a timeline or um, slotted into a calendar or, or anything like that. And you still get, you know, this is, anthropologists call this task orientation. It's the way mm-hmm. of life where the rhythms and your understanding of time just emerges from the activities that you are doing rather than this abstraction where you line up your activities against a schedule and worry about whether you can fit them all in. And obviously there are some, there are certain sort of places in the world today where people are more in this mindset than elsewhere. But back in the medieval period, for example, and most pre-industrial times, like you milked the cows when the cows needed milking and you harvested the crops when the crops needed harvesting. And you just never had any cause in the first place to think of time as this abstract mathematical realm and then to sort of try to manipulate your life into into fitting into these boxes in your head or this timeline in your in your head and this has all sorts of different consequences but i think one of them is that the sort of day-to-day experience of people who live in this context is this kind of orientation towards time is probably much more what we would call sort of peaceful and calm and has a sort of mystical quality to it because i think we have all experienced it ourselves but just in in isolated moments in sort of awe-inspiring natural landscapes or meditation retreats or you know various other contexts and I think it would have been more like that more of the time even though it was also as I keep saying you know terrible if you're a medieval peasant (laughs) uh, endless diseases and dying at 30 and and giving all your money to the local lord and the local church but I, I just sort of hold it out there because I think we forget right that we we have set up this idea that t- the fundamental thing about time is that it is this resource that we have a relationship with and that our job is to try to extract the most value out of and that if we don't then we're guilty of wasting time or, or you know we're trying to force more things into the same portion of it all of these interesting ideas that give rise to our time anxieties they all depend on this idea that like there's you and then there's time and the mm. question is are you going to win or lose the the fight that you appear to be in with time. And and actually, that's not the only way to think about it. See, that that was my oh shit moment in the book, Rodney, <laughs> when I was like, wait a second, you milk the cows every day forever. <laughs> you don't, you're never done with any of the activities that made up this life, right? It's yeah. all just maintenance and cycles and rhythms. And that, that was like, whoa. Because so much of what I think of in my given day is going to be done forever. Like I'm going to do this and then it's done. I'm going to ship this and then it's shipped and that client project is done. And so you get very addicted to the doneness. Mm. And and that was a real reset for me to be like, wait a second, there's a lot of stuff that's never done. What would it be like to approach it that way? And, you know, important caveat, people occasionally throw my way. Like they certainly do try to make milking cows into a more efficient operation these days. Like absolutely nothing is immune, but it's that it's that notion that like, yeah, the work goes on forever. So when you die, there'll still be an infinite amount of it left to do. (laughs) There's no sort of arrival moment when you're going to get there and stand on top of your life and be like, now it's all, now it's all easy from, from here on out. And it, and the ironic or paradoxical, I suppose, consequence of that is that there is a sense in which life becomes easier right now. That, that struggle that sort of rush into the future from where you are becomes like 
less of a thing that you feel the need to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also, I really appreciate the pushing back against the idea that this is some sort of battle to be won. Like Aaron knows I've, I've long had a lot of issues with like time management gurus and have taken a lot of umbrage at a lot of the suggestions because <laughs> for the exact reason that it always felt like a very like, um, it felt like a real muscling through. Like a lot of what I read when I was younger about time management felt like if you can just overcome like your instincts and like nature and seasons and just fucking get some <laughs> routines. Beat it to death. You can be, you can win time and life too, <laughs> right, right. you know? And like, I just, I found that kind of offensive, honestly. And it also just felt like a very like patriarchal and gross way to view the unfolding of life. So now that we know that traditional time management is nonsense, can you talk about what some of the practices are that you would suggest to people instead of overcome the rhythm of fate and the ticking of time and do this instead? Like, what do you tell people to try? I will totally get to this, but can I talk like meta talk about around yeah. that topic for a moment? I mean, I'm so interested in this and I'm, it's sort of, I think a lot about it at the moment, actually, this question of where you go from grasping a perspective, having an insight, whatever it might be, you know, that hopefully this book can contribute to, to that bit where you kind of then make it happen on mm. a, on a day-to-day basis in, in real life. And part of me sort of wants to block the question when I get it and say, the point here is to sort of clear up a a fog or an illusion that I think we're often under when it comes to time. And once that illusion has cleared and you understand that, um, that, 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 trying to find a way to do everything is doomed and that uh, you know there will always be things you're neglecting in order to focus on anything that matters and all the rest of it i kind of want to say like that's it then then you just then you just have to live you know it's like it's a, there isn't necessarily a a technique for operationalizing this outlook because it it's almost like an anti outlook it's almost like a stop falling for this illusion and then it's like okay off you go that said I am too attracted to good productivity techniques myself, and I was—I knew that it would be something that people wanted from the book. So there are plenty of these things, I think, scattered around the book, and then in a in an appendix at the end. And I guess they are just different practices and techniques that I think lend themselves to reinforcing this perspective shift. Right. So it's not that they are the key thing you've got to do in order to be living a finite limit embracing life or whatever it's just that they are ways of of handling time that that seem to go along with that perspective quite a few of them all come down to this basic same idea one of the things i say in the book is like stop it's time to give up this uh, clearing the decks you know mm. taking this approach to your day or to your week or your month where first of all you're going to get all the little stuff out of the way that's been tugging your attention and then apparently later these great oceans of time and focus are going to open up where you're going to be able to focus on what really matters most. And I sort of try to take that apart and say, it's not going to work. The decks are just going to fill up again faster. Um, you'll never get to that stage. So instead you have to turn that around, I think, and pay yourself first, as it's been uh, expressed when it comes to time. Do the thing that matters while tolerating the anxiety that is associated with not clearing the decks, with knowing that there are emails in your inbox, with knowing that there are other open loops, you know, tugging at your attention. Because if your goal is to close them all first, that's all you'll ever spend your life 
doing. And then another technique in there, just to show that these are all basically the same technique, you know, there's another thing in there about the idea of limiting your work in progress. So this is something Mm -hmm. that people who organize their work around the Kanban workflows are very familiar with, but there are other ways of doing it. Just in some way, limiting yourself to one or maybe two major projects at any one time, maybe there are other ways of doing this with sort of daily tasks and things, but just just limiting the amount of work that of projects that you're trying to focus on at a given point in your Mm -hmm. time, in your work and, and, and accepting the anxiety of making all the other ones queue up to wait for one of those tasks to be completed, right? Becoming very sequential about how you do these things getting that chapter written before you move on to planning that event, you know, just even though it feels like they all need your attention right now. Um, because actually I think that sort of multitasking is another of the ways in which we just try to feel limitlessly in control of everything. And it backfires because we end up not making sufficient progress on, on anything. You know, there are a whole lot of things like this scattered throughout the book. A lot of them do just come down to this idea of, learning to stay with the anxiety of neglecting something or letting something of not moving forward with something for now while you focus on something else because that is just that's a way of working that just respects limitation instead of constantly trying to find some way around it yeah. I don't know if that's what you wanted but that's my yes that's my, that is what I wanted can I tell you yeah. mine yeah I don't know if I got this from the book so you know that was a while ago that I read it but I feel like everything that you just said makes a ton of sense to me. And it's, and, and in some ways it's about like, you know, accepting the anxiety, as you said, sort of riding the waves of that, et cetera. What I found to be really helpful, this has really only been a, a strong practice for me in probably the last six months, is really giving in whenever I can to my like energy and intuition when I want to do something. So it's like, if mm-hmm. if I get like a bee in my bonnet about writing a thing that I have not touched in a long time, to whatever extent I can, I will literally drop everything and just do it. Like just like ride the wave of energy while I have it yes. rather than being like, oh, if, I, if I'm excited about that now, I'll be excited about that in two hours once I right. finished filing right. my expenses. Like, no, I fucking won't. Let's stop kidding ourselves. We know better. And two is when I do that, really trying to like be a little bit reflective of how easy and how energizing it is to do the work that you have heart for in the moment that you have heart for it so that the next time I have the voice that says like, why don't you go respond to that thing? I remember how great it feels to just give in to that instinct and do it. I think that is absolutely right. I mean, I think I I still struggle with this. And it might sound antithetical in some ways to what I was just talking about in terms of making yourself not begin certain projects until others are complete. But I think it all it all goes along ultimately with the same idea of like accept who you actually are, right? Yeah. Your capacities are limited by time and they are limited by mood and they're limited by energy levels. And like working with that, even if your only goal was to be as productive as possible, which it probably sure. shouldn't be it would still be the best strategy, right? Because right. you would get there that way. It reminds me of a blog post that um, the meditation teacher Susan Piver wrote years ago that I link back to all the time, which has the headline, Are Getting Things Done by Not Being Mean to Yourself. 
Mm. which um you know she really gets into this fact that like well she starts off with that quote inspiration is for amateurs uh, the rest of us just get to work which is I think, close. <laughs> um, it's amazing. We, and it's kind of lovely in a way and everyone got very for there were years when you saw that on you know twitter or wherever every every other day because it's got that wonderful kind of like okay enough nonsense just like just do the work and i think stephen pressfield's work as well has this strong ethos sure. of like just do the work, you know. The pro is the person who just shows up and does the work. And I don't think any of that is wrong, but oh man, it is easy for a certain kind of person of whom I am one to use that as a stick to beat yourself with. Sure. To be like, you know, I don't feel like it this morning. Who cares what you feel like? Yeah. The pro just gets to work. And it's like, well, there's another side to that coin. And I think it's the one that you were expressing. Uh, yeah, when you said that, Rodney, I had like a Las Vegas arrow light up sign be like this. Because <laughs> that really that really resonates with me, too. And I think, you know, when you read The War of Art or, or, or Stephen King's on writing or anything about kind of the slog, there, there is some truth to that, like the rhythm. But what it really was about for me when I took some of that to heart was just getting over that initial resistance and then letting yourself be in a play space anyway. So it's not like you never find the muse. You just find it 15 or 20 minutes into the, into the experience. And that's a, a skill and a practice that you build. But I, I actually want to pull this back to the organizational context because, you know, Oliver, you're on a, a podcast about changing the way work works. Cool. And when you were saying it's about letting go of that idea and actually what's left in the negative space is kind of good enough. That really resonated with me a little bit about what we do, Rodney, where if you can just let go of the idea that prediction and control and you know a rule for everything and, and, and a hierarchical approach is going to somehow solve complexity and get you there, yeah, what's left is almost good enough. Like You'll figure out the rest. You don't right. need to necessarily do exactly what we say. You can find your own way by just eliminating what it's not. Yeah. And I thought that was, there's a connection there. And it made me wonder, Oliver, have you thought at all about the connection between this book and and the philosophy that it presents and the work context, the teaming and organizational or or workplace context and any reflections there? Yeah, a few, although, you know, I'd like to hear yours as well, because it's definitely not, you know, my, it's not my point of origin here, where it's not my starting place with all these ideas to think about those sort of applications my first instinct is always to say like organizations and teams are made up of people and Mm -hmm. and so the individual level here i think remains really important you know there are definitely ways i'm sure i know that that the approaches to things like prioritization discussed in the book can be implemented on a team-based level but at the same time all those teams still have individual humans in them who have to have their own feelings and approach to prioritization just to know how to organize their their days so i think you know that that's one direction i go off in but but the other yeah i think one of the things that we are you make a really good point and i actually had i'd rather just get you to talk about it some more but <laughs> but one of the ways of looking at what i'm one of the ways of interpreting what i'm saying in the book is that like there's a part of us that tries to achieve a, a kind of control or a feeling of control over our mm-hmm. over our reality and over the rest of our insides that is counterproductive and so you can see by an obvious analogy from you know an individual human to an organization 
that fixation at the top of an organization with trying to achieve that feeling of of being in control of the ship and feeling that you know what people are working on and that you are and that, and that the, your sort of directives are being implemented exactly you could ex- imagine it le- leading to the same problems and as when it's you know my ego trying to control the rest of me and and you could also imagine that yeah being able to surrender some of that and for an organization to just sort of be in time as it were rather than winning the battle with time would be something that would be really fruitful and productive that's awesome yeah it's it's interesting to hear you say that first of all because it makes me think of you know the is the c suite the ego of the organization and secondly yes i i'm reminded rodney of how of how seldom at least in my experience maybe maybe it's different on your teams but how seldom we talk about time and the philosophy of time we do talk a lot about kanban and emergence and agility and all this kind of stuff but but i don't recall very many philosophical discussions about time in the boardroom yeah i mean i think that where it shows up for for me, both in my internal teams and in client teams, is that late stage capitalism wants us to always feel behind. And like, there's always sort of this drumbeat of how much, how quickly, how much, how quickly. And, and my point to clients and also in terms of the teams I work on is like, if you are in relationship with the environment, then you are never behind. And so that is where I think it comes up a lot is because, you know, people who are checking things off their list and ignoring emergent events, pandemics, you know, various trends that they're seeing, like they might have a sense of being in control or being efficient or being productive Mm -hmm. because they're seeing those projects in, you know, with the, with the green check mark on the Gantt chart. And to me, it's like, if you are responding, if you are adapting, if you are making use of what the environment is throwing at you, you are never behind because exactly. you're because you're in it and you're with it. And who fucking cares about the list? And we aspire to that. I mean, I, I did a Twitter poll yesterday where I asked, would you rather be the person that started Patagonia, a $2 billion company, or Uber, a $62 billion company, which I think in some ways those represent the polarities we're talking about. Yeah. Let my people go surfing versus super pumped. And and eighty nine point nine percent of people, uh, and there were hundreds of votes, chose Patagonia. Yeah, of yeah. course, I voted. But they don't work there, way. right? And very few of us do. <laughs> right. So yeah, yeah, I think it all feels it all feels quite like fractal to me. And I think the other parallel I would draw between the kind of organizational work that we do and the the lessons from your book, Oliver, at the individual level is. One does feel about like it's about command and control, like like time, traditional time management feels like scheduling in your calendar, like in this 15 minute slot, I will do X. <laughs> and the way that we work in companies, but also I think the call that you are making to the way people might organize their time is like more containered to be like, you know, after this time of day, I have a space for play or a space for rest or a space for relationships or a space for whatever. And what exactly goes in that container can be dictated more by what's up in that moment. It's not, it's not adherence to content. It's like surfing the context. Wow. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and this reminds me of all the thing, like my own experiments with organizing my own day, not in a 
primarily in an organizational and team-based context, it has to be said. But that balance between having some intentionality and structure in the day versus a kind of rigidity that, you know, as I've written before, it either doesn't work or it does work and then it feels incredibly oppressive and awful and so it doesn't work. I think that's really, that's really, that sort of getting that tension right between having some shape to things and going with what feels right then and feels most important then. So to shift gears a tiny bit, because I think you just talked about, you know, the different ways that we can we can fail or not not succeed in, in doing this the right way. You hint a little bit in the book about how the current time management ethos actually perpetuates inequalities as well. Because when busyness is prestige, then it forces everyone else to keep hustling and grinding and playing into those patterns we just talked about. Can you talk a little bit more about that connection between busyness and prestige and inequality? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge topic that I don't really have not gone into in, in, in vast depth. I really did in this book want to keep the focus on the sort of universal elements of the problem here rather than the ones that manifest differently. But I think you're absolutely, well, I mean, you're quoting me, so of course I would think you're absolutely right. <laughs> Nailed it. So you're both right. <laughs> Nailed it. I, I think I'm right when I say that um, part of part of what goes on here, so first of all, we're in this very strange situation, historically speaking, where success and rising up the ladder and and all the things that 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 one is expected to to want in our economy are accompanied by really really intense hard work and the pressure to do more and more and more so that if anything people in the most senior positions are more overwhelmed than than people at least some of the people in less senior positions and maybe more overwhelmed as i said before in a, in terms of the pain of the choices they have to make because they are actually now more overwhelmed with things they want to be doing, which which can be a, a different kind of existential crisis. But once you have this kind of situation in place, you're going to get the result that on some level you have to play along with it whether you want to or not. So maybe you want to say that somebody who opts to work in an extremely high status, extremely well-paid, but incredibly crushingly busy role has a choice in the matter they could obviously you know they would still be fine if they chose um to to not do that but you know firstly they just set the ethos of the corporate cultures that they work in mm-hmm. secondly you know the as i say in the book you know one of the ways they can try to introduce efficiencies and and bring sort of success to the bottom line of their organizations is by you know, cutting costs and reducing staff size and making a smaller number of people do the same amount of work or more. So they, that in that sense, their ethos is enforced on people who don't even get the benefit of their very high quality of life and don't have their any agency in the situation. And then just expectations when it comes to things like responsiveness to email and how fast things are supposed to get done. You know, if society expects that you can answer a certain number of emails in a 24-hour period, it doesn't particularly matter all that much if you can that you can perceive that this is impossible. I mean, I think I argue in the book there's a lot of internal psychological liberation to be had from understanding where you're facing impossible external demands, but still the overwhelming pressure for anyone lacking power is going to be that they have to do everything they can to sort of bend themselves into shapes where they could try to meet those 
requirements. So I think you're going to get, as a result of all this, and I think that's one way of interpreting what we do see, a kind of a, what do I mean? I, I suppose I want to say like a centrifugal effect or something where certain kinds of inequalities are going to be amplified because the whole system is just kind of on an acceleration towards ever greater efficiency. And it's always going to be the people with the least power in that situation who bear the greatest burdens of the demands for greater efficiency. Yeah, that's the bummer. <laughs> also, <I> mean, <laughs> your answer really made reminded me that I really wanted to talk to you about death. Because right. when Aaron suggested this book to me, I was like, ooh, I'm a witch. I want to talk about like time and nature and uh, you know why traditional time management is garbage. And then I was like, oh shit, this book is about death. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about how our, like how time is so existential for us and how our failed manipulations of it are related to our own relationship with our inevitable demise? I'll try. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, I mean, just to make the obvious point, our limited time is a ramification. It's a consequence of the fact that we die. If you didn't, if we didn't die, then, then none of this would be an issue because there'd be plenty of time for everything and you could try out every imaginable life and never have to choose between them. I think it would be absolutely terrible in various ways, but, but that's a separate, a separate question. And so th that's one motivation, obviously, that we have for shying away from contemplating the fact of our death. It's not really a book, this one, about sort of dying and the end of life. You know, it's like I'm, I'm talking pretty much exclusively about what dying means for our time, which is that our time has a limit. There are obviously, you know, there's a huge literature on, on what it does to us to try to not think about the fact of our own demise in a more sort of direct sense and the benefits of doing so in sort of, you know, traditions of memento mori and, and things like that. I, I think that one place where this all sort of comes together in a way is that that kind of inner effort that we're making to to master our time, to sort of get on top of time, get everything in working order, get rid of problems, and enter the problem free the problem free time, is basically, I think, psychologically, the same thing as trying to cheat death. Right? It's, totally. It's about trying to make it so that we don't have to die. And if we can't intellectually convince ourselves that we're going to get away with actually not having to die, then we can at least do the sort of functional equivalent which is to do an infinite amount in the time that we do have which sort yeah. of adds up to the adds up to the same thing and then i think it has i mean if you want to go even deeper into this i think it has a i think there is some very deep need in us to or many people anyway to feel that we are i don't know justified in our mm -hmm. existence mm -hmm. and our sort of right to be here and that um achieving enough and becoming productive enough would constitute a kind of salvation in the religious sense. And so, you know, anyone who has studied a bit of Protestant Christian theology will recognize all these themes. It's called salvation by works, you know, the idea that you could the, the idea that you could effort yourself into a position of being saved by your sheer amount of good actions in the world. I think, you know, regardless of whether someone is religious or not, that idea is very deeply embedded, and we are seeking some kind of uh, transcendence of this situation, some kind of salvation. And like the good thing about actual religions, whatever else you make of them, is that they have a 
they have a ready answer to this, right? It's like, no, no, you're already saved thanks to, you know, divine grace. We've sort of got this situation in the secular world where we have the desperate desire for salvation and are lacking that uh, that alternative. So therefore, you do just have to get it by becoming uh, infinitely productive, apparently. You just have to get and, it by yeah. having no unreturned emails in your inbox. <laughs> right, just that's, be a god. That's it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That'll get the job done. So you started writing this book at the beginning of the pandemic, and it actually seems like a kind of an interesting place to to draw things to a close. Now that we're in year three, believe it or not, year three of this experience of having our relationship to time and space being blown up and reimagined, are you seeing any shifts in in the way people are either thinking or working or approaching time? Anything that gives you hope or gives you pause? What do you think we've learned about time during this extraordinary experience? Oh, I think, you know, we've really learned a lot. I, I didn't actually begin writing the book in the pandemic. That would have been a much more efficient process of writing the book if I had only begun that recently. But I did <laughs> write a big a big chunk of it in the pandemic. I think there are all sorts of different ways in which, you know, being deprived of activities that you deeply care about can be very illuminating because you understand how important certain things were to you when when lockdown prevented them from happening. Choral singing, in my case, became suddenly <laughs> the, the most dangerous thing a human could do because of COVID. It was like, it was very strange how that- Like riding a the, motorcycle. Right. My my rather nerdy uh, <laughs> hobby became like, uh, like a high-risk activity. But also things that people didn't have to do for a while in many contexts, like commute, that they were suddenly like, oh, hang on, I, I kind of like this. The Just the omnipresent reminder of life's fragility, which is what's going to happen when you're reading so many headlines about death. And just this idea that I, I don't know if I'm really invented this phrase or not, but like this this idea that I call in the book possibility shock, this this notion that when everything changes in a way like this, no matter what you think about the changes, no matter whether you think, you know, schools should never have closed or, you know, any number of different positions you might have on what happened, it shows that things can be very, very different if there is right. the will for them to be very, very different. Mm -hmm. And that sort of is a thought to conjure with because then it's like, well, like, what are some other ways in which they could be really different if we decided that they were going to be different? And maybe it helps if you're, you know, if you're like the national government making these decisions, it's certainly easier to force compliance with them. But maybe, yeah, maybe there's a freedom in that for somebody in a small organization to think like, hey, like we all just on a dime, one night to the next, started working from home instead of from the office. Like if we can do that, what else could we do? Maybe, you know, all sorts of interesting and creative alternatives. So that feeling that like things have got to be the way they are gets upended when big changes happen. And I think that can be a very useful thing to to cling on to as we sort of move back into somewhat more normal rhythms of, of time. Well, certainly challenging every single one of us to consider what we want to recreate from the old world and what we want to start anew. Seems like a pretty great place to draw things to a close. Oliver, where can our listeners find out more about you and about your work? Well, the book, 4,000 Weeks, is everywhere you'd expect to find a book. And my website, oliverberkman.com, has more information about it, a place to sign up for my email newsletter and other things like that. Oliver, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing these ideas. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
So look, folks, if you like what you heard today, if you liked contemplating your mortality and existence with us uh, deeply during your commute or whatever you're doing, give us a review. So tell tell everybody else what it look, what it feels like and forward this show and actually forward this episode, I think, in particular to someone who needs to hear it. Forward it to everyone and also make them read the book and <laughs> shout expletives on the street in front of their neighbors. A quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. As always, Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. 